1: With us, we have Dr. Wes McCullough, the founder of the Gourney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. We have Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gourney Professor of Economic Education and Research. And finally, Graduate Assistant-Elect, Voss awesome Mellon.
0: All right. Well, we are excited to have a special guest, uh, Dave Trobert from the Kansas Policy Institute, where he's the Chief Executive Officer, uh, frequent speaker, and to politicians, both local and statewide, I, I think you've done a little testimony in D.C. Didn't you? No, One not time? D.C. Not D.C. Yet. No. Okay. So, um, so yes, he does regular issues there with uh, um, uh, supporting policies around Kansas, and and maybe exposing policies would be the right thing. They're they're a nonpartisan uh, kind of think tank and policy group. Uh, His commentary has been published in the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Investor Business Daily, Forbes, Washington Times, the list goes on and on. And so it's just a pleasure to have you on today to talk a little bit about maybe occupational licensing and maybe some other issues we get into. Sure. Welcome aboard, Dave.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
0: All right. So um, on our side discussion, when we were starting to talk about school choice, um, we started talking about eyebrow braiding threading and threading eyebrow threading that's right uh, eyebrow threading um and there, well this is related to the kind of braiding issues too but eyebrow threading uh help us out with that and why is that an issue
2: okay so uh a lot of people have heard about having like having your eyebrows waxed or plucked well eyebrow threading is another way of doing that same thing uh, it, it it's passed down it, it started in India uh, probably centuries ago, and somehow these practitioners can take a piece of cotton thread, lasso an eyebrow, and pluck it. There's no contact, there's no you know it, no chemicals or anything. It's a piece of cotton thread. Well, in Kansas, in order to be an eyebrow threader, you have to have by state law a uh, cosmetology license. You had to go to cosmetology school. Uh, and you would spend maybe fifteen thousand dollars at getting your license. Guess how much training there is in eyebrow threading. <laughs> I'm guessing zero. You're guessing correct. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, it was it, so the, the point was these people were being deprived the right to earn a living. There was no basis for, I mean, we need regulations. But there has to be a public good for a regulation, and if if you're not teaching it, why would you make someone go have this license in order to do that? It's and that's where a lot of the uh, some of these occupational licensing requirements come in. Uh, it's obviously good for the people running cosmetology schools to have that requirement, and so there's there's that kind of push, uh, and and legislators can easily be pulled in to. You know, uh, well, look, you want people to be safe, don't you? You don't want to oppose this. And so it's they go into it without thinking. Uh, and there's a lot of laws on the books, not just in uh occupational licensing, but in many other areas that that are like that. That it's they're frankly unconstitutional.
0: Yeah. And the the hour commitment, boy. And do you know off the top of your head the hours? It's fifteen thousand dollars, but it's also like fifteen hundred. I think it's about fifteen hundred. Yeah.
2: yeah, yeah. The price varies on where you go, but it's. I think it is fifteen hundred hours.
0: Well, and I was getting my haircut here a month or so ago, and um, talking to my stylist, and then I also had another conversation at a dinner thing where she was in cosmetology school, telling me how the required hours, uh, if they're there for eight hours a day some of the people, if they don't have the right contacts there apparently isn't enough business. Now this might be a problem with this particular school uh, where you know you can get discount haircuts and whatnot at the at the school. Uh, but they're sitting for five hours a day on their phone. Mm. and I'm thinking they're not even getting trained and they're forced to be there when they could be out at us at a salon earning money because mm. they're paying tuition, to sit there, and then yet there's not enough business for right. them to stay busy, and you know there's an expectation that you do a mannequin mm-hmm. cut and you work with a mannequin hair, but you know how many times can you do that if there's not enough business? So it just seems like that stuff can perpetuate into bad situations.
2: It can, and and so there's uh, so what happened there was uh, we represented our our litigation division, uh, Kansas Justice Institute, which is one of our subsidiaries uh represented um the uh, a person who wanted to she knew how to do eyebrow threading she want and her family wanted to employ her at their salon but they weren't allowed to mm. because she didn't have the license
0: oh interesting so they actually had a license I, I presumed had a the family members had the salon so somebody was licensed and she wasn't even able to operate like under their license
2: that's right that's right they huh. couldn't hire her uh, so uh the we filed the suit um and um, and then brought the brought it to the attention of the state legislature uh, and they looked at it and agreed that there really wasn't any basis so uh they changed the law so that eyebrow threading is no longer requires that type of a license
0: now unfortunately that type of change does not help out our just regular hair braiders so i've I've, this comes up at college a lot right so you got poor college kids they came from a family they're great at braiding they start their own little side business of braiding hair and technically they're breaking the law um, as near as i can tell and i don't think a lot of them get called on it uh, but people who do want to let's just say put a shingle out more formally uh, have been called on it that they have to quit their business or get their cosmetology license um to what extent is there is there suits that are viable to say, hey, hair braiding should be exempted out too? If that's all you're doing is hair braiding, you don't need to do the rest of the training. Have there been cases like
2: that? Uh, all over the country. Okay. Uh, and I'm not familiar with the hair braiding laws. I'm a recovering accountant, not a lawyer. <laughs> so um, you, you can't. I can't, uh, and, and our uh, litigation director reminds me all the time, you cannot give legal advice, uh, and, and we're not doing that here. but. Uh, there there are, i'm not familiar with the hair braiding laws in kansas mm-hmm. it may be or may not be exempt i'm not sure but there are a lot of great examples like that it's just like this doesn't even pass the smell test of, of having a requirement another one uh that the legislature just changed uh dealt with uh, advanced practice registered nurses uh they are they have medical degrees they are licensed to do certain uh, medical procedures and, and so forth. But under Kansas state law, you had to have a collaborative practices agreement mm-hmm. in order to practice individually. And that meant you had to have a contract with a physician. Right. And you had to pay the physician 15, dollars dollars $30,000 a year, basically for the right to hang your shingle out. Because there, the law did not require the physician to supervise, uh, to see patients, to consult. Uh, they just got together once a year, picked up their check.
0: Did, it, did the physician take on a little liability of no. any sort? Or was it really a kind of a franchise deal? It really, it, like? it really, that's all it was.
2: And so what happens <laughs> is, and, and this is really important in some of the least served areas of the state, where the, the APRN may be the only medical professional within 50 or 75 miles. Uh, and, and so the legislature looked at that, that had been come up several times uh, in the legislature of the uh, another Kansas group, Americans for Prosperity, uh, uh, has done a lot of work on regulatory reform also, and they were really the driving force behind that one. Uh, And the legislature now said that the collaborative practices agreement isn't needed. So
3: I wanted to dive a little deeper. I think this sounds crazy to everyone. But as we all know in this room, you know, people are rational, right? Uh, There's reasons for the things that they do. and so what is the driving force? You know, I, I asked, by the way, listeners, you should listen. We did a podcast with Dave about school choice. And I asked a very similar question uh, in that podcast. I'm curious, who is the driving force behind these apparently crazy laws? Uh, why would you ever want uh, a law in place uh, that requires people to have like 1500 hours to to thread eyebrows or whatever, <laughs> you know, a uh, small thing it is?
2: What, what's going on here? Well, it, you have to go back to motivation. And so I wasn't around when that law was put in place, but you can see where it is beneficiary to the people who run cosmetology schools to have it. And so there are often lobbying efforts to basically restrict competition. Mm. Uh, There was one uh, a few years back uh, where some severe storms went through Kansas. And there's always shysters that come out uh, and they'll knock on your door and say, Hey, I'm a roofer and we'll fix your roof. And sure. they run off with the money. And so there was a push and they passed a law that said, you have to have a, you have to be licensed to do roofing. Well, now really. It, it sounds good, but really how many people are going to know to say, I'd like to see your license when you come to my front door. <laughs> and And if they do, it's pretty easy to fabricate one. You yeah. wouldn't know. But the next year, they came back and said, we're going to exempt the general contractors from that.
0: Hmm.
2: It you, you see these kind of competition. I'll give you another classic one. This is the first case that we worked on at Kansas Justice Institute. Uh, are you familiar with raw milk, unpasteurized milk? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. So perfectly legal in Kansas. But until we got involved for 50 years, people who produced raw milk could go to jail if they said they had it for sale. You are not, you were not allowed to advertise. You were not allowed to talk about your product off your premises. Talk to someone in church and say, Hey, I have uh, raw milk for sale. You've broken the law. Uh, That's no longer the case. We won that. Uh, But uh, in that case, the people who sell something other than raw milk want to restrict competition, and in this case, uh, the, the Department of Agriculture uh, what was really pushing hard. They they still tried to get labeling. It's like, all right, you can advertise, but we're going to make you use this print so big on your label that it you know it won't work. Uh, you're going to have to put these warnings out raw milk ingredients says, milk <laughs> oh it, it, you know it's yeah it, it may lead to you know your ears may fall off yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so, but but it comes down to somebody wanting to protect their turf or or limit competition yeah
0: I was wondering if beyond the schools if the do the salons have trade associations I'm not aware of any but I didn't know if Certainly, existing another group would be existing salon owners who have had to go through the licensing stuff. They might be part of this lobbying group that would sure. And, and of course,
2: you know, if you don't have a, uh, there are some that have their own kind of associations, uh, but they also hire lobbyists uh, to to work the legislature on their behalf.
4: Um, so in the beginning, uh, we started out saying, you know, some of these regulations are terrible, and the the uh, eyebrow one seemed. Uh, like a great example of that because you had to get a license to do something else in order to practice the thing that you wanted to practice, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then uh, Russ talked about, uh, you know, cutting hair and that this this licensing might be uh, slightly onerous too. And it seems like maybe having a criterion for when licensing is appropriate might be something we should talk about here. And, and if we do that, uh, just to uh, put the cards on the table, it seems like the criterion has to be something like uh benefit to the general public rather than to one sector of it and when we talk about that it seems like well how many people are we losing to bad haircuts per year right
2: um that that's a great point you know it's uh and and there's uh there's no right or wrong it's all personal uh perspective on what you think is uh, a safety uh, potential safety issue or not uh but it it has to be balanced and that, you know, are we are we helping the greater good with this regulation, or is it just kind of feathering someone's nest, uh, or is it just you know uh, it, it's just not necessary? Uh, so there's uh, haircuts a great example. If you go in and you get a bad haircut, you don't go back. Now. You weren't harmed. OK, you you could be, uh, you know, maybe I'm upset that I don't look the way I want to look for a couple of weeks, but there's no real damage done to that person. Uh, and so, uh, you know, but to say that you have to demonstrate that you, I mean, you had to go learn somewhere. So the, the barber who hires you or you open your own shop, um, you know, they went to school. Uh, if you don't like what they do, just don't go back. You're wearing an it, advertisement too. You, <laughs> you are, yeah. It's like don't you don't yeah. want this? Don't go there. Yeah. So, uh, but you know, things like medical professions are different. Um, there's uh, some of the licensing. Uh, okay, so there's there's licensing for electricians. So you want to have to demo. You, you ought to know what you're doing. There's a safety factor there, but then it gets worse when the uh, electrician wants to work on your property and they have to pay government for the privilege of doing that for a permit i talked to someone mm-hmm. uh earlier this week uh they were doing some um some work on uh on a, a some apartment buildings the permit cost $10,000 now that's coming out of someone's pocket. It's getting passed on to the pricing. it's all there. Why does a city have to charge $10,000 to get a permit? Because they use the money to hire more employees to go out and do inspections. So it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle of the more we can charge you, the more we can expand the reach of government.
0: Yeah, and uh, before we go to half, with my construction background that we had they are the city's not never liable if they overlooked or missed something too so let's say they don't do the inspection or they overlook an electrical problem the house burns and somebody dies the city's never responsible for that it mm. always falls back electricity so we don't even get something like that out of it where people are protected or right. least some sort of safety net so all right well this looks like a good spot for a break and uh when we come back i want to challenge uh uh throw this out as a compare and contrast with raw milk case versus crappie fishing. We'll be back in just a bit.
2: The Gordon Institute is offering free
3: homeschool economics courses throughout the year in the Ottawa area. And this course will cover scarcity, uh, supply and demand, and common economic fallacies. If you're interested, contact Peter, Justin, or us today.
4: Otto University has an exciting new major, PPE, which stands for philosophy, politics, and economics. Each of these three fields is interesting in their own right, but they intersect in ways that are important to understand, both individually and for your community. If you find philosophy fascinating, but want to make sure that your study of the subject is practical, if you enjoy economic analysis, but want to see how economic laws interact with moral principles, if you are interested in politics, but want to explore how economic and ethical realities constrain our political choices, you should consider the PPE program at Ottawa
0: University. Faith and Economics in Action here at the Wharton Institute. We have some great high school student programs like PPE Fest coming up in October. This is an event where students get to listen to some world-renowned speakers and participate in competition geared around philosophy, politics, and economics. Our Everyday Economics program is just a half day on a Saturday, and we have integrated discussion about common sense economics. We have a college credit microeconomics course that runs every eight weeks. Your high school student can earn college credit for the special price of just $200. If you know of some high school students interested in programs like this, please contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast or our
1: events and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit the Gourney Institute page on the Auto University website and, and donate.
0: All right, we're back. Uh, we're here with Dave Trobert from the Kansas Policy Institute, talking about different types of policies and licensing, and and does it really work the way we think it would work in the in the name of safety and other things? And so. Uh, the fisherman in here, which is me, had to bring up raw milk versus crappie fishing. And so I learned that I've acted illegally. Maybe I shouldn't be seeing this on the podcast. Your friend,
3: you mean? Your friend, a yeah. friend
0: I know, yes, named Bust. I can edit. Uh, sure. <laughs> so it turns out in Kansas, if you um you can't sell crappie, first of all. So you fish that you catch, you can't sell. Which, you know, that brings up compared to the raw milk, um, you own the cow, presumably you have all the property rights are contained within the person. And so it seems like they should have the right to uh, sell the milk and in the case of fishing, you can't sell the fish. But here I'm, you know, being able to harvest these fish from public grounds and so still staying within limits or whatever. But if you have excess fish, I can't go on Facebook marketplace and and sell fish. Well, it, this is where we get into the, the gray area that I'm not so sure I'm keen about. So if I give away fish, and I have been known to have many crappie Christmases, um, when you give away fish, you should be documenting the person and the date and the time in which you gave away the fish. I, I'm supposed to be keeping a record, or my friend is. My friend's supposed to be keeping a record of this uh, of these fish gifts. And so um, that's where I think it goes too far. I, I you know, some of these things, maybe, you know, it's one of those laws that was on the books for some reason or other, and then it's never enforced. But potentially, if McCullough has uh, a target on his back, you know, maybe they'll come down and say, where's your crappie log? Where's your gift log for crappie? So um, I thought compared to milk, to me, the milk case, yeah, was was obvious. But there probably are some good laws of restricting sale when it maybe blends in common property, like the lake that is state funded with other people's tax dollars besides mine?
3: Well, I'm, I'm against any sort of licensing laws personally. Uh, and the common property angle, they shouldn't give you a permit if they want to maintain common property. So I, that that's my view on that. But e- even I think electrician is the great example, Dave, which I, I know you said you uh, probably uh, think that there's some case, and there's certainly more of a case for electricians than there is for eyebrow threading or barber shops or something like that. But even the electrician case, I think, well, First off, any time that somebody is taking on any sort of transaction that is just them and one other person, uh, you know, that doesn't really involve other people. And so if you bring in an electrician to your house, let's say I live on three acres and so I'm not next to anybody. We don't have to worry about that. If I bring in some really bad unlicensed electrician to do you know, random work in my house, uh, I, I'm taking that risk. Right. Uh, that's between me and that person. and uh, I don't really need someone to protect me from the risk taking, you know, I, as a customer, I'm very concerned that my house doesn't burn down, right? Probably more concerned than some bureaucrat. And so I, I don't really <laughs> care uh, to have a bureaucrat involved who doesn't care as much me about the house not burning down. And so that immediately throws out those cases for me. I think the best argument might be like, what if you're in an apartment complex or your uh, house is really close to somebody else's house, which tell like, you know, happens in these big cities and maybe your house setting on fire, uh, you know, hurts the person next to you or something like that. When those third parties get involved, that's the best case for, you know, having whether it's government involvement or, or some other agency. But even then, I, I just struggle to believe that these agencies that kind of operate off their own incentives, um, I, I, I don't think government has the knowledge of what a perfect regulation will look like, nor do I think they have the incentive to, in, you know, enforce that knowledge that they don't even have. Uh, so I, I'm really opposed to all these agreements. I think that customers generally have pretty good incentives to make sure that their houses don't burn down uh, more than the government's. And it's, they probably have more knowledge about their house than the government. So uh, I'm really opposed to all licenses. And certainly when we get to easier things like haircuts, like it's no-brainer <laughs> to me, uh, it's, it's a nightmare that there's any of these things in my view. Well,
4: um, to Peter's point, if you look at something like the restaurant industry, um, I, th- I think it might be useful here to separate Regulation from licensure, generally, sure. Um, the restaurant industry is regulated in the sense that you know you, we have inspectors come in and make sure that people are keeping uh, you know meat above a certain or below a certain temperature when it's being refrigerated, et cetera. Um, and have you know worked in the restaurant industry for twenty years, um, and you know when the regular when they're coming and uh, it's it's largely pro forma. Um, but the United States is known as having like some the best cuisine in the world, and this is where some of the best chefs in the world come to work. And one of the interesting things about being a chef is that there is no licensure requirement mm-hmm. for being a chef. Um, there, there are culinary schools, and some people do go to culinary schools. But some of the best chefs also just train under the best chefs. There is a network of the best chefs in America who, and uh, people will go apprentice under chefs, um, and that is how you build a reputation as a great chef. Um, and then, of <laughs> course, the other way you build your reputation is by serving great food. And this is a position that requires you to deal with hundreds of people on a daily yeah. basis whom you
3: could poison. Right. right? Um, probably and more
0: dangerous than our barber, right? Much more dangerous yeah. than <laughs> the barber. Potential um,
3: Probably more dangerous than an electrician per, per person. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. and when we
4: talk about regulations, too, the regulations on the restaurant industry, even though it is regulated, are, are pretty low. And uh, But the rate of failure for restaurants is really, really high. So one, this is a great example mm-hmm. of um, a sector where there is very little licensing, um, minimal regulation, but the amount of competition creates a scenario where we have some of the best product for the lowest prices in the world.
2: Yeah, that's a great point.
1: Uh, Luke, did you have something else to add on a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say with your crappie story and what Peter was saying about the electrician, the between Peter and his electrician, the interaction and the is between them two with your crappie example, you're basically interacting in exchange with the government or whoever put the fish in that pond. And so I can see some kind of them wanting to track of how much fish they lost in a year with gifting if you give the fish away since you're not allowed to sell it it's the only way you can do it is by giving it away. And so I could see them wanting to, Keep track of how much fish we lost in our transaction with Russ McCullough this year. But then I can also see this restaurant example toward, <laughs> just let people do what they want to do. You're putting the fish there for oh. everyone, not just for Russ.
0: Yeah. yeah, I was starting to warm up to Peter here a little bit on uh, maybe once that crappie is harvested, it's private property. I can do whatever I want with it. Yeah. Right. And, and the state sets regulations that you can only pull, you know, 20 per uh, trip. And they do have. Regulations on how much is supposed to be in your possession Uh, it's twice the amount of the of what the legal limit is so there's restrictions that way so why do they care if I give it away or or sell it or otherwise yeah so, if I don't trust your crappie I'll throw it away yeah, I'll, yeah, say, just, I'll say just, thank uh, you for the uh, gift for us just like it. the chef and I'll which sell, I don't sell it. do I promise to these culinary chefs or something yeah, so
4: yeah. government won't even let you trade crappie for illegal drugs <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, Dave why. could you explain a little bit what went on with the the sandbar this is a little more on the regulation side but the Kansas sure. uh, Justice Institute helped uh, a bar owner that actually lives in Ottawa, Ottawa area, I think she lives in between um, Lawrence and Ottawa now, but uh, Peach had a, a bar up in Lawrence, and and uh, what happened? Yeah, that?
2: so Peach Madel was the owner of the sandbar, um, and during COVID, uh, and, and this was a great example of things that happened, frankly, all over the country, where local regulators, sudden because of emergency situations, they had new powers. And one of the things they did in, in Douglas County was to say uh, bars like Peach had had to, uh, I think initially they had to stop serving at 10, and then they moved it to 11 and so forth. But restaurants had different rules. Well, what's the basis for that? I mean, can, I mean, seriously, can, does it like, well, yeah, I can get COVID in this building after that time. But nowhere in that building before that, it, it, there was no not no uh, rhyme or reason to it, and so it was discriminatory uh, uh, against bar owners, and and that ended up in the the county changing uh, the regulation. There were things like that all over. Uh, another one that we got involved in was out in Dickinson County, where they put um, attendance limits. I think it was twenty five percent capacity on going to church, Mm -hmm. but other businesses had a higher capacity level. What's the rationale? You cannot discriminate. Um, And and so these kinds of things happen uh, all the time, or in the case of something like raw milk, it's been on the books for 50 years. And and that's part of the reason that that we uh, uh, developed Kansas Justice Institute. Uh, It's a nonprofit um, litigation center where a public interest law firm, uh, so, we sue government on behalf of people who've had their rights violated uh, at no charge. It's, it's nonprofit. We represent people pro bono. There is, if anyone feels like they have a constitutional issue, uh, they can go to Kansas Justice and there's a case page, and you can just submit your case, and our attorneys will will look at it and they will get back to you.
0: Hmm. And there's other institutes like this uh, for listeners in other states uh, that they could have a maybe a similar outlet.
2: Exactly. There's uh, there's there's maybe as many 20 now uh, in different state based. There's also some that are national, like the Institute for Justice uh, and others like the Goldwater Institute and Pacific Legal Foundation that will get involved in uh, cases that are kind of outside where they were. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is another one. Uh, there, there's lots of opportunities to be represented. And these organizations are doing amazing work in protecting people's rights.
0: Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think maybe to start to wrap things up, uh, you know, why do we care about isn't it good to protect the status quo? I, I think the thing that often gets overlooked is the mi- missing out on growth. I think Justin put it well with the, the chefs that we have this flourishing uh dynamic uh restaurant scene. Um a Silicon Valley is actually another example where regulations historically been pretty low, and there's pretty fierce competition with apps and other things. Uh, that one's slowly like Zuckerberg's trying to put up barriers for, you know, we got to protect the safety. So it's the same thing that kind of plays out industry after industry where the existing uh, firms and or like you mentioned the cosmetology schools, other stakeholders want to protect themselves and keep competition out. And too often, either the public stays rationally ignorant, and it's like, I, I can't learn about everything, every single issue, and and the politicians run with an easy, I'm here to protect and save. And that's where we end up in these things, Peter.
3: Yeah, and if, if that were true, it would be one thing maybe, uh, but it's not true. And so I, I think one of the great examples you just brought up was uh, COVID closures and the fact that churches were closed, but in some places like bars and strip clubs were open, right? Uh, or, you know, abortion clinics or something like that. And you might say, oh, well, abortions, healthcare. that's why, and churches aren't. But, uh, you know, uh, talk to anybody who's a member of AA about uh, the effects that a church can have on someone's life. Uh, you know, the, the state clearly was not acting in the best interests of people when they were closing churches but leaving some other establishments like that open. The government just doesn't have those incentives or that knowledge to make those decisions right anyways. Uh, so I'm glad for... Uh, Institutes like uh, Justice Institute, uh, which will act on behalf of uh, individuals who are unfairly treated, because that's that's the big problem. Is that uh, again, it'd be one thing if politicians were doing this for our best interest, and that's all they cared about, and they were successful at that every time. But it ends up being arbitrary is what actually happens, whether intentional or not. Uh, And so I'm I'm glad for institutes which fight against that arbitrariness.
0: Yeah, and it sound the you got the Kansas Policy Institute that's kind of more forward looking, right? Before the fact, ex annie, you kind of look at those things, but you look at the history history too. But then the Justice Institute's there to pick up the pieces of somebody who was done wrong by you know people overacting or otherwise. So so Dave, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank
2: you. Thanks again for having me. This has been fun.
0: All right, great. Well, this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University, and I'd like to thank you all for listening. Uh, Please forward this podcast on to other friends and family that might have a potential eyebrow-threading business uh, that they're looking to get and they can't quite get it started. Um, These are some issues that we all should be informed about and aware of. So other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.